Thank you all for joining us for this platform talk. Um, my name is Tanya Sagatchian, and I have the honour and privilege of talking to the director, Ian Rickson, today about his production translations. So, Ian, I, I wanted to start by asking you why, why you chose translations. Did you come to the National? Did they come to you? And um, if it was your choice, what it was that you felt was important to um, to tackle in it as a production. I did come to the National with it, and if you do a revival of a classic, you really want to enshrine it as a great play. And I thought translations hadn't had a revival on a big stage before in England, and perhaps it was quite purposeful to revive this play at the Royal National Theatre and to create a ritual where 1,200 people engage with English history, uh, look at education, and I'm concerned about, as I'm sure many people are, certain veers in education in this country, and the play is very brilliant about one sort of education, the idealism of the head school, and a new kind of education that's coming in, and that felt very resonant for me. Um, and I felt that with the Good Friday Agreement, Brexit, all of those things sort of in flux at the moment, and language becoming more political, particularly in the North, it might have extra resonance at this moment. But then I was terrified because I thought, is my craft good enough to sit the play on this stage? Uh, I had a feeling that, I've worked in the other two theatres here, I'm lucky enough to say, I had a feeling this was a better space for it. So I gathered a group of Irish actors and the National very kindly let us read it in here, read it in the Littleton, come back. And all the Irish actors said, it belongs in here. Um, and then I was stuck really, I was doing it in here. Um, <laughs> and Were you scared? I was terrified because <laughs> quite a lot of the play is one person talking to another. Uh, it's intimate. Um, the tone of the play is complex to get because act one is largely naturalistic, act two is lyrical, and act three has a kind of existential depth. And to, to find a tone that allows it all to feel truthful and not to feel exposed on this stage was a real challenge. So um, then it becomes an issue of policy is people you work with. Can you construct a team of people from designer to each actor to the whole team that will allow you to find the right uh, resonance for the play, to support the play. And um, Ray Smith is a designer I adore. We've worked together many times. And um, we just went to Donegal and drove around and looked at the topography and spent time in different places in Donegal to do with the play. Went to see Brian Friel's widow and just sort of infused ourselves with the uh, geography of the play and the kind of emotional um, currents that might affect how it's staged. And my feeling was that it should feel elemental and mythic rather than a literary play or a sort of um, purely psychological play. So um, this 
if you think about the elements, we've got the earth, we've got this big mound, which allows a sort of archetypal feeling. If you're stood up stage, it's quite kind of Western. Then there's this sort of liminal area of the peat, and then there's this, this area, which is the sort of real world. Uh, we've got the fire, we've got water, we've got wood, metal. Um, but there was something that felt very interesting that Ray really helped um, us find, which is this concrete. And um, the place set in 1833, and perhaps we didn't want it to feel like a museum production, a facsimile of everything in that moment. And if we made some decisions which made it feel kind of pan-chronic across time, Look at the concrete stairs going up there. It sort of fits with the um, Dennis Lasden concrete aesthetic of the National. And it makes it feel perhaps maybe a bit of the area where the play emerged, which is 1980, Derry, uh, really the low point of the Troubles. And the play, I think, is always speaking to that moment and um, to now. The other thing we thought of was that this space is based upon Epidavros in Greece. And could it, could it feel like a Greek amphitheatre, which is both epic and intimate? And uh, the Greek plays always had a kind of platform that raised up, hence the staircase. And they were very sort of minimal and simple. Uh, and I think the temptation in the Olivier is to get the drum revolve working, to do a lot of flying, to really use the toy box. But for me, there's nothing more eloquent than an actor and a word. So that's how we've ended up with this. Well, I have to say, um, sitting on the stage and having watched it from the audience, uh, that feeling of the epic um, and the intimate was beautifully, beautifully conveyed um, for the audience. Here, it seems so simple. It really does seem simple sitting here, and I can't quite figure how you conjured the enormity of time and space and life and love and all the themes that are inherent in the play in one set, one simple set, without all those sort of pyrotechnics of scene changes. And, um, and, and I realise that that is sort of how you gave so much of the space to the language and to the performance, which yeah. I imagine were part of the things that attracted you to the production in the first yeah, place. Yeah, it's very pure in that way. And um, that Samuel Beckett quote that the best theatre is the maximum corporeal and the maximum verbal. I mean, this no, might not be that fashionable in the days of dazzling auteurs and fantastic productions with uh, video, etc. But um, with the cast we've got and with Brian Friel's amazing depths of um, feeling and it, there's nothing preachy in the play. When you think about the premiere of this play in Derry in 1980 with police helicopters um, above it, with people being frisked by the army as they were going in, uh, with both sides of the sectarian um, struggle in the theatre. And, and some people even suggest that this play was part of a peace process. You know, Brian Friel is um, generous enough to make one of the heroes of the play an English soldier. Um, and I think how nuanced the play is in this attempt of Field Day, who produced the show, to find a um, really deep 
searching way of looking at what it is to be Irish, uh, how artistic um, solutions can be reached for in terms of the war zone they felt they were in. Mm. Um, and it's, it's great to draw from that uh, well. Mm. Um, and much of the play, as you say, is set in 1833. It's set here in a hedge school. Um, the English are about to introduce a policy of both national schools and of renaming all of the Irish um, uh, villages and towns with English names. You feel a culture completely under threat, um, but you also feel the weight of history and the weight of the future um, mixed up in that. Um, how much did you know before you started the play? Is, the, is, is your process one of research and exploration in the making, or do you know an awful lot before you pick your, pick your subject and pick your production? I mean, it's the great privilege of directing a play that you get to go on a journey learning more and more about the world. Mm. So, uh, yes, I did lots of research, and we had a historian, Dr. Roy Foster, came into rehearsals. We also had a soldier and a classicist and various different people to help us. Um, and all of that's really, really useful. I think, for me, the biggest journey is into the writer's unconscious and to try and locate their personal myth. Because if I can find that through what they say, through obviously the play, through their other plays, then that might help me get close to the real source and the centre. And for you, for Brian, what do you think the source is? Is, is it language? Is it colonisation? Um, is it love? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think all those things. I think uh, a big thing for Brian Friel was how do I write in an inherited language, English, a language that's only been spoken for 200 years, that's been imposed? How can I um, work within that structure and be creative? And it's a language of occupation. And you could say the sort of king of Ballybiog, where the play's set, Hugh, ends up saying, we've actually got to learn these names. We've got to work with this language to survive. Uh, so that feels to me very strong to Brian. Absolutely, invasion, occupation. He grew up overlooking an English barracks and the uh, city he lived in, Derry, uh, as he's becoming a formative playwright, the number of soldiers is increasing sort of tenfold. So that's a big thing. And there's a thing about Brian Friel's characters, they're either leaving or staying. There's this dynamic all the time about home and consciousness. But I wondered whether the real um, deep personal myth is absence of goddess. So it sounds a bit fanciful. What I mean by that is um, there are really very few mothers in Brian Friel's play. I mean, there's Dancing at Lunasa, which has a lot of feminine power. But he frequently removes the mother and he removes feminine values. So when I say goddess, I mean uh, qualities of nurture, connection, uh, reparation, etc. And it's interesting if you really follow that through. So very early on in the first five minutes, a character comes on Jimmy Jack and he's searching for Athene. And he talks about... Um, 
Artemis, and uh, there's a kind of debate about where the goddess is. And then at the end of the play, uh, Hugh, the other sort of patriarch, talks about Juno. And I think they're trying to summon uh, a kind of um, reparative female energy into this very brutal world. Mm. Um, but if we look at the women in, in the play, one struggles with speech and language, another sees the opportunity of the English as possibly being a way out, uh, yeah. a way out of Ireland, a way potentially even to America. Yeah. So it isn't, um, he hasn't created a home for, for, for no. any of them, has he? And he says in his diaries, I'm trying to reach back into um, a kind of island that's pre-invasion that I don't think ever existed. He's quite critical, you know, that it's full of, there's um, alcoholic, someone who's maimed, there's, as you say, um, somebody who wants to leave, etc. It's not idealised. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that struck me in my ignorance uh, was the importance of, uh, of Greek and Latin and classical language and Gaelic to the kind of Irish myth and the Irish tradition. It's no, no surprise yeah. that there are such good storytellers <laughs> yes. uh, amongst the Irish when they're schooled in real storytelling history in a yeah. way that certainly the English education yeah. doesn't necessarily yeah. give us. Yeah. Um, and I wondered if you could talk a bit about the challenge of staging a show in English where some of your cast are speaking Gaelic to one another but we're hearing it in English yeah. and that those choices that you have to make when people can communicate with one another or can't or are yes. speaking another language. I mean first of all um, this is a moment before the classics were appropriated by the elite and really sort of cordoned off in the um, top universities. So in 1833, Greek, Latin, Irish, English were all tongues in the hedge school. And the hedge school is quite an idealistic educational environment because it's learning for learning's sake. And then uh, perhaps the moment we're in now is much more, uh, is, is different to that. Um, <laughs> yeah, because I don't want to sound too preachy. Um, Doing a play where the language is English and people are speaking Irish and often there are cultural tensions about who, what understa who understands what, was, it's an opportunity. Something difficult is always an opportunity. So um, when an English man is listening to Irish people talk, in rehearsal they frequently did a kind of Irish gibberish. If the English man is drilling uh, Irish people in English, he often went into gibberish just so we could keep making strange what it's like to not understand. Um, and that, that's what's great about rehearsals, that with an open, willing company, you can work in so many exploratory ways where you really fashion it together. Um, some of the improvisations that the actors have done. So I mentioned a character who's lame. Um, the three O'Donnells, Hugh, the father, and his two sons, did an improvisation where the son was five and the younger son was three, and they went all the way to uh, Letterkenny to see a surgeon. And they played this improvisation out so beautifully, and it teaches me about the characters. And when you've got a flexible, responsive company, it's a dream like that. Um, we've run scenes where I call them hauntings, where when Moira is 
asking where her love has gone, uh, Yolland. We had Yolland um, laid on the floor before her. We had uh, Hugh haunt his son as his son's trying to leave, but he's so yoked to his father. Uh, and every actor in this show, because they work hard, knows how much dirt they've got under their fingernails, what their working day was, what the temperature is, uh, so that when they come on, there's a whole life there. And is that a discipline you impose as a director, or is that do you cast people who you know will take um, take on that level of research before they say yes to? I mean, both of those things, but. Um most good actors want to work hard. Mm. Most good actors are searching and um, like detectives, hunting for, for clues. So, yeah, I mean, it's my job to impose it in a kind of working ethos way. But you do cast actors that you think are generous, who are ensemble players and who um, want to really keep going. And um, they are like a strange cult, this company of actors. They are obsessive. This company, your company? This company yeah, here, yeah. yeah. They um, are very self-regulating. They'll do things on their own. They're um, really, really committed. Oh, it's just lovely. Uh, and is it challenging when you have that many? I mean, you, it's quite a big cast. I, I haven't counted how many you had. Are they all in all of the rehearsals for most of the time? Or do you parcel them out and do little handfuls of rehearsals because they're not obviously always on the stage together? For me, it's challenging initially. And a volume of people in a room uh, over two is a bit overwhelming. And I find it quite beleaguering. But then after about a week or 10 days on this one, you get totally into that volume and it's really thrilling like a big band. Mm. The complication here as well is because you have so many great people working on it, you'll often have 10 people watching as well as 10 people in the scene. So the room is quite big and if your policy is to create as fearless a room as possible where anyone can do anything stupid which might lead to something genius. If there's too many people watching, I can feel a little bit like I start impressing the people watching. So the only way I managed to deal with it was to um, move my chair back, sit on the floor in front of all the people watching and forget they were there and just be looking at the actors. Wow. But I have to say, all those people watching are terrific and useful and doing something really important. But I suppose we never allow for the director or the person who's orchestrating the whole thing to be scared or frightened or shy. We, we assume that you embody the role of yeah. the fearless yeah. leader, but in actual fact, possibly that can be overwhelming for the cast too. And that Absolutely. Sometimes I mean, directing is partly a performance and you're tricking the actors that you're fine, that it will be great. And um, the element of performance can be demanding. But a bit like having parents that overshare or come to you and say, I'm really unhappy, I'm really worried. The child, the actor doesn't need that. They need you to emit a calm, um, well, I, I wouldn't say 
completely confidence, because I think you have to be a human being, but you have to lead with a sort of uh, belief that something brilliant can be made. And, I mean, obviously, when you were at the Royal Court, Ian, you, you almost specialised in new writing. How much difference does it make when you're working with a living writer who's created something which hasn't been seen before, or when you're trying to, as you say, put a modern classic onto a stage and you don't have them literally with you in the course of uh, the making? I think being alongside a new writer and making something together and really striving to realise and release their play is something I just love. And there's something lonely about the writer not being there. But when a writer has had their play on many times, they can sometimes, I don't know whether Brian would have been like this, be controlling about how it should be. The opening stage directions of translations have, you know, a hay bale, uh, a mill wheel, um, walls of a barn, and um, probably 10 white actors, etc. And Brian not being around perhaps was a, an opportunity, but actually his people who came, including um, Anne, his, his uh, widow, loved it. So actually that was just so important to us. And, uh, and quite a lot of the people knew Brian in the show. So we did feel we were channeling him in a really good way. So he was always an anchor and we absolutely obeyed everything, every stage direction, etc. like a Royal Court play. Uh, that, that point that you raised about white actors or non-white actors, particularly in the context of this play um, and this production, I think is an interesting one because the casting felt very appropriate. Did it? Uh, because? I, be because I felt that having a, um, a, an actor who was not an, a white Englishman play the English interloper, Yes. Um, was a very interesting way of looking at what it is to be English yes. and who is, yes. and who is uh, excluded, included, yes. who thinks of themselves as being part of a community and who doesn't. And I just wondered if you could talk a bit about that as well. Well, you were very articulate about that. And um, partly the play's about empire. And yet, the person who, one of the people who comes in as an embodiment of empire is other compared to the people that he meets. And I think that's um, sort of beautifully evoked in the performance. But also you just want to cast the best actor and that actor is perfect mm. for Yolland. Mm. So mm. It's, it's great. Mm. Well, he also brings so much of the comedy um, to the stage. And I think with a play that has the heft of this play and that has as much complex intellectual underpinning and linguistic prowess, to actually have somebody who is able to make you laugh, to make you realize that in use of language, there's um, an inability to communicate the, the, the courtship scene between yes. him and um, Moira, Moira yeah. um, where they can't actually talk to each other, but they are able to talk to each other, yes. is a wonderful piece of yes. staging and yes. very entertaining as yes. well. I mean, he, he's reading three books when he's writing the play. He's reading a book about mapping the Ordnance Survey of Ireland. He's reading a book about the hedge schools, 
And he's reading this book by George Steiner called After Babel, which is all about how complex language is in terms of character, that it can speak us, that any communication is an act of translation. And I think he was probably so tickled, Brian, that the um, most profound moment of contact in the play is through two people who can't understand each other. And he probably also appreciated the kind of strange irony that it's a play about Ireland and Irishness and the collision with empire written entirely in English. Mm-hmm. And are the, you say he was reading three books. Are the threes, is the, are the trinities important in this play and were they important to you? I think most plays have um, triangles and I think mining those triangles, whether you're thinking about um, rescuing, persecuting, victim, that triangle, or whether you're thinking about how triangles always have a tension. So there's uh, two lovers and a stranger. There's um, a father, two sons. And it's a really nice mathematical algorithm to run, a, run threes through a play. And uh, one thing you can do which really helps um, create a company is divvy out loads of homework. And um, good actors love doing it. So I think there are 72 characters in the play, if you count all the offstage characters and you count Artemis and Juno and whatever. And uh, one group created pictures for every offstage character. So if they talk about... Uh, Big Ned Frank, everybody on stage knows what he looks like. They've found an image of somebody, either from the 19th century or it could be someone from now. Um, They did a massive research on where everything is in the world because the magic trick of theatre is if an actor thinks in pictures and really sees, we see. So if an actor's talking about Tob of Ree, which is a place sort of um, where there's a well or kind of near there. They know where it is in terms of a compass on the stage. I could go on. Chronology. I mean, the work that um, Kieran Hines and Aoife Duffin did on chronology was exceptional. So they know um, exactly what time the hedge school starts, how long it goes on for, what's happened the day before, what day of the week it is, what time the sun sets. I mean, we are nerds, but I think that degree of detail and immersion just pays off because you've got so much of a full, fuller tank to draw from when you're acting. Mm. No, I, I couldn't agree more with this production. And I've got one last question to ask you before I give you over <coughs> to the audience. And that's really about your own work and putting it in context. And in some ways, I saw this as a companion piece when we talk about the elemental and the earth to Jerusalem. And I wondered whether you could talk a bit about that or also saw it as having certain similarities in terms of defining a space and a culture and a place? Well, Jerusalem is so rich and lush and striving to look at the complexity of being English. Uh, Very like this is set in one place, a place that's in a siege state. Um, And I mean, 
how lucky am I to direct that and to direct this? And I think it's one of Jez Butterworth's favorite plays, translations. I think it was the play that turned him on to playwriting. He saw his brother in translations at university and I think suddenly thought, wow, plays, what an amazing thing. But I hadn't really thought of, until you said it in your bright way, about the connections. Because in a way, you just go on to the next play and that's just your only lover, the only thing you think about. Um. So, and thank you um, all for coming and thank you, Ian.